Allow me to let you behind the curtain a little when it comes to sermon introductions. The goal for a preacher is to catch the attention of listeners. In some sense, give them a reason why they should say, hey, maybe I should listen to this. If you can have a catchy illustration or story to, to, to catch that attention and draw them in, all the better. And yet, as I thought over sermon illustration or sermon introduction for today, what is important for me to say, how can I get your attention and bring you in, it dawned on me. The Son of God was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose to life. And He walked out of the tomb. I can't give you anything more fascinating than that. I can't give you anything more attention-getting than that. God took on flesh, bore our sins on a cross, died, was resurrected, and now reigns, and He invites us to Himself. Find and taste and drink from wells of mercy. With this in mind, my hope is to take the story of Jesus' death and His resurrection that we might get a wonderful picture of the glories of our risen Christ. But I don't want us just to see the events. This is why we're going to be back in Isaiah 53. I don't want us to see the events alone, but I want us to see and understand the heart, the mindset, the focus of Jesus in His cross and in His resurrection. Because the question that rests before us is, if He is truly God, why did He subject Himself to this? And what we will see in this passage is that Christ's heart is our hope. Let me say that again. Christ's heart is our hope. Perhaps a way of thinking about this as we enter into God's Word, as you think about this, is to ask, is Christ's heart my hope? Or where does my hope lie? Follow along as I read Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's Word. May He write its truths upon our hearts this morning. Three ways that we see how Christ's heart is our hope. The first being that the purposes of God flourish in Christ's work. 
The purposes of God flourish in Christ's works. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12, serves as a, as a, as a, as a bit of an epilogue to what has just come in verses 1 through 9. If you're familiar with what has just come in just previously in Isaiah 53, 1 to 9, they functioned as a sorrowful prophecy of the, of the coming humiliating, horrific sufferings of Jesus as He would endure the cross. But then this epilogue comes along that explains these events, and it moves them from, it, it, it adds color to the picture. It fills in the blanks. It adds fullness, a, a, a vivid reality to the story of the cross, to the story of the resurrection, and what it would mean for you and I. Because what, we can, what it cannot mean is something that we look back upon with a sense of sentimentality or a sense of, of even fascination, but, but we don't get that sense of awareness of the power and purpose of it for us today. Well, Isaiah 53, 10 to 12 helps us see this. And first, it helps us to see this and seeing how the purposes of God are tied to this. So first question, if I, if I were to ask you, just ask rhetorically, just think about it in your own head, who was responsible for the death of Jesus? You can answer Roman governmental authorities who carry out his crucifixion. Yes, yeah, certainly. You could answer maybe Jewish religious leaders who deliver Jesus to the Roman authorities to be executed. Of course. But the answer to this question would be yes, but there's a driving force even further behind this. Verse 10 calibrates us to the sovereignty of God in the death of Jesus, where it stands out before us and says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What is going on here? I mean, you read this, and, and, and I've read this before and thought, is that some kind of divine child abuse? God the Father crushing God the Son on the cross? What Scripture presents for us is the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, eternally reigning perfectly in, 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 in full unity and harmony together. And the coming of Jesus Christ to endure the cross was not something that was, happened willy-nilly. Him and God the Father were not sitting up in heaven saying, oh man, mankind has really gotten himself into a plight. How are we going to fix this? One of us is going to have to go. All right, let's flip a coin. No, this was designed in the wisdom of God. We must take into account that Jesus was fully involved and invested in the purpose of his life and the direction of his life that would lead to his death. But we see this more clearly in the latter part of verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, but then it goes down, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, listen to this, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Think about this, what would Jesus see as he was dying? We look back on this weekend. We look back at the cross. Do you know what Jesus was looking forward to? Us worshiping Him. The redeemed rejoicing in their Lord who had come and atoned for their sins. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. This is 
the heart of Christianity. Jesus took the cross upon himself, and now through his death and his resurrection, he gives new life to those who will look upon him in faith. And the will of the Lord is gathering worshipers for the praise of his name. Perhaps life has you at a point where you feel as if there are aspects of it, family life, your own health, your plans, dreams, maybe not coming to fruition quite like you hoped. Confusing predicaments that weigh upon you as you face an uncertain future. Or as you still come to grips with a painful past. The goodness of God is that He has sent His Son that He might come and bring you to himself that you may know him that you may know his love his goodness his faithfulness his kindness his gentleness our Lord was crucified in one sense in order that all who would trust in him might know that he is humble and serves them for their good. If you would like to know more about this Jesus, I would love to speak with you after our service. Or you could reach out to me via email. My email is on our bulletin on the back page of it. There is nothing more important that you could give consideration to. Is Christ your hope? Do you know his heart? So, dear friends, Easter enables us to rest not only in the work of Jesus on the cross, but in the wisdom of God who orders our days. Easter tells you that though you may be in the thick of it right now, not sure where to turn, not sure even how to turn, Easter tells you that you can rest in the wisdom of God. That you may feel life is out of control. But if you belong to Christ, you are right smack dab in the palm of his hand. And may I remind you that that hand is nail pierced in love for you. So brothers and sisters, the purposes of God flourish in Christ's work, but that's not all that we see. Secondly, we see the pain of Christ finds satisfaction in the redeemed. Remember, we're seeking to understand the vast reach of the cross, the vast reach of the resurrection. What is its importance for us today? You're busy. I'm busy. I was this morning. You know how I was celebrating the resurrection this morning? I was looking at my calendar for the week ahead and saying, oh, there's a lot on that calendar. That was after I got up at like 4.30 for the sunrise service. But anyway, we are all busy we have enough demands on our time. But the purpose of Easter is to invite us to see the Lord who brings us into Himself. That we might find joy in our Redeemer. 
We're seeking to understand the vast reach of his redeeming work. Is there power in Christ over my busy calendar? Over all the demands that weigh upon my shoulders? And he says, yes, there is. He says, yes, there is. Look at this in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul. Okay, so this is a crucified Christ. His soul in anguish. And listen to this. What, what does it say? He shall see and regret. No, it does not say he will regret it. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So anguish of soul to seeing and being satisfied in those whom he takes for possession of takes for his own possession. Childbirth is something that I have witnessed twice in my life. My two children. I have learned on those, I don't think I've seen any other babies born. Yeah, I'm not drawing any other conclusions. Okay, I've been up a while. I, I've I've seen it on TV. I've seen it on the mo- in the movies. But that is not what happens in real life. And I learned that with the birth of our oldest. I am not exaggerating when I tell you that that day, in the delivery room, South Shore Hospital, July of 2018, when my son was born, the doctors, the nurses, the, my wife, the, the person that, the, of all the people that are involved in this, my wife, our son coming, me, they were most concerned about me. I was not doing well. It was an, I don't know if ugly is the word, it was, it, it, it was, it was full. Yet out of that massively full, even gory ordeal of childbirth, what came? A precious child. In a world where we seek to clean everything, to sanitize everything down, to, 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 to rub off the rough edges of, of stories or of things that might offend our sensibilities a little bit, what we see here is that in that cross that, that left splinters in His body, in the cross where the nails were piercing through His hands, our Lord in His gory death, He looked and He was satisfied because He knew through that death is how he would bring worshipers to himself. And here's the thing about worship of Christ. It's not something that's done like, oh, okay, I begrudgingly do it. He had his eye on those whom he would bring to himself as they would find in him complete joy and satisfaction. Brothers and sisters, let's not allow the cross of Christ to be so neutralized, so sanitized, so, so, so distant from us to rob it of its ugliness. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. But why would this be something that Christ would subject him to? I've already humiliated myself once with a story of childbirth. I'll give you another humiliating story. My mother was a nurse when I was growing up, so when I was a preteen, even teenager, she would bring home flu shots once a year to give to us, and I would literally run and hide. I knew eventually she would get me, but 
I, I did not like shots. We don't seek out pain as human beings. What would make the pain of the cross worth it to Christ? It's all according to the design, the wisdom of God. So how does it work? Look at the end of verse 11 and verse 12. He makes many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And then look in verse 12. I'm not going to read it all yet, but you see the word many mentioned a couple more times. The very first line of verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And then in the second to last line, yet he bore the sin of many. What is happening in Isaiah to this point is the unfaithfulness of supposed worshipers of God. It's just being highlighted and highlighted and highlighted. But then Jesus is held up as this, this faithful servant. And it's like he is the only one that is righteous, the only one that is faithful in service to God. And yet, it is like he goes through the looking glass in the cross. And as a result of the cross, the, the, the grace of God springboards out to many, to all nations, that they might be brought to faith in Christ, that they might find in him all that their hearts have ever needed. And so the many here speaks of people from all nations. This Easter morning, some 2,000 years after his death and resurrection, worshipers of Jesus gather together in small one-room homes in the heavy, snowy mountains of Nepal, singing praise to Christ their King. Churches gathered this morning in the heart of busy, loud, hot Nairobi, worshiping King Jesus. Brothers and sisters will gather in open-air gathering places in tree-filled jungles of Nicaragua, all singing of the glories of the risen Jesus. And they sing as the redeemed who know that death, no matter when it comes, no matter how it comes, it will not have the final say over them because in His death, Christ has swallowed up death. This Easter morning, some 2,000 years after his death and resurrection, worshipers of Jesus gather together quietly in darkened living rooms in Saudi Arabia, hoping not to provoke the suspicion of authorities. Churches gather together in hotel banquet rooms in modern Singapore, rejoicing in Christ who is sufficient to care for all of their needs. And Christians gather together in a 155-year-old building in, of all places, situate Massachusetts. All singing the same chorus of the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ in his life, his death, his resurrection. This is what Christ saw. And so with the satisfaction of the, in, in the redeemed and with the ultimate purposes of God at the forefront of our minds, helping us to understand the wonder of the cross and the resurrection, what do we do in light of this? Well, we see finally and lastly, the crucified and risen Christ is our hope. This is in verse 12. There's always a struggle for preachers. There's a truth here that I want to communicate, that I want to explain, but sometimes as a preacher, you feel as if you have been given watercolor paints and been told to recreate the Mona Lisa. This is simply unbelievable, astonishing, absolutely soul-altering, hope-stirring. I don't know what to do entirely with verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So basically what this is saying is Jesus 
himself became the rewards of his suffering. And God shares those rewards, shares that rich inheritance of his love with who? You and I who are in Christ. We are invited into the joys of God that were previously only known in the perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are invited into joys that have no expiration date. We are invited into joys that are anchored to the perfect faithfulness of our Redeemer. We are invited into joys that though depression or anxiety rears its ugly head, we know that joy will come in the morning. We are invited into joys that allow us to rejoice in the fact that even as our bodies waste away, even as cancer creeps further, even as loss and grief rears its ugly head far too often, we know that they do not have the final word. And why do they not have the final word? They do not have the final word because our God in His wisdom and in His love in accordance with his good plan. He entered into our world. He entered into human skin. He endured all that could be thrown against him by sinful men and women just like you and I. And he met it with And he defeated sin and death on the cross. Why? Because verse 12 tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. And look at how this concludes. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you realize what that's saying? It is saying that after his death, after his resurrection, it's almost like it's saying, and you know, that's, there's more. Christ the Lord stands at the right hand of God the Father now. Seeing every need, seeing every burden, seeing every weight that would weigh upon, that would bring his people down, and he is taking those before the Father. He is lovingly ministering to, he is lovingly caring for, he is lovingly shepherding his people along the path of this life. He bore the sin of many, he makes intercession for the transgressors. It's as if Jesus has not only accomplished His work in our redemption, but He is now actively taking our needs, our, our souls, our lives, our days, our future, taking them all before the throne of God. And He's saying to you, and if you think that, you cannot trust Him. Look at His goodness and wisdom in sending Christ to bear the penalty for your sins. And look at his power to raise him to life three days later.
the wonder of the resurrection is we don't look at it and say, okay, that's really good, that guy defeated death. Now, how does that fit into the story of my life? Isaiah 53 actually helps us to see there is a far greater story that stretches across time, that stretches across history, that stretches across the world, that even stretches from heaven down to us. It is not our story, it is God's story, but he invites us into it through the crucified king. And he invites us to know that when we enter into that relationship with him, that story of what he is doing, the servant that he gives us to care for our needs, to keep us warm when our souls are cold, to give us hope when we are downtrodden, the servant of our needs is the Son of God Himself. Christ's heart is our hope. May He be our hope as we dwell upon His heart.